every year in the beginning of the year so far, now this is our, this is our, we're coming into, this is our fifth year, five years. On the 31st of January will be our five-year anniversary as a church holding Sunday worship, worship series services. That's, that's kind of crazy. <laughs> Every January, we've done a series, <clears throat> a vision series of, you know, how, what we're doing here. Why do we plant a church? Why are we, why are we uh, putting ourselves through all this to, to build a church from scratch? And, uh, and so this year, again, we're going to do that. It usually focuses on, you know, our church, the mission of our church, uh, what God has called us to do to participate in the mission of the church, which is to bring uh, to, to, to bring the gospel to the nations and to teach people all that Jesus has commanded us. Uh, and, so, and so we're going to do the same thing again this year. However, this year, I, I'll admit, I was really struggling as to what to do this year because it was like, man, the, like the, the crazy train has gotten so far out in front of us already for 2021. It was like, what do I even, where do you even start, you know? Where do you even start when 2021 is already told 2020 to hold my beer? Uh, so, man, it feels like it ramps up. It's ramping up so fast and exponentially so much more difficult to figure out, okay, how do we continue to be faithful, uh, a faithful witness in all the crazy that's happening right now? How do we, how do we help ourselves or how do we guard ourselves against being caught up in any extreme on one side or the other, but remain faithful to what the Bible says about being a witness in the world. Uh, and so I decided to do just that. Sometimes um, the Bible's really clear on a lot of this stuff. Sometimes reading this stuff uh, can be painful. Sometimes it might challenge us, but it's really pretty clear about what it means to continue to be a faithful witness, even uh, in a culture that we ha- in a culture that we have now, so that's what we're going to do for the next three weeks. Uh, is talk about what it means to be a faithful witness in our culture. And so, if you would please stand, uh, we're going to read today from First Peter chapter three, verses eight through twenty-two. Let's give attention now uh, to the reading of God's word. And finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain blessing. For whoever desires to love life, to see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. 
For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as the removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord, we thank you for your word that is so much bigger even than our imaginations, Lord. Uh, the gospel that you are engaged in, the gospel of the good news of Christ's rule over all the cosmos, the good news of, of his salvation, the salvation that you have won for us through him is so much bigger than we usually even take into, into consideration, Lord. And so I pray that you would help us to see this truth, that Christ rules over the cosmos now and that we are safe in him. Help us to see that beautiful truth, Lord, and help it to, help it to calm our fears and to trust in your promise. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So please be seated. There was a... Uh, a while back, there was an epic experiment in a church where they took uh, a bunch of Christians who were all about big government, who were all in, bought all in, sold out on the idea of heavy taxation and government works and just the whole agenda of the government, you know, just being the entity that will bring peace and security and prosperity to all uh, just believers in that big idea of government. And then they took other Christians who were highly suspicious of the government, who thought, you know, the term, in terms of government was almost a synonym for corruption. Uh, people who were um, just mistrusted everything the government did and were convinced that it was corrupt beyond repair, along with other people that were, among, you know, in various points along that spectrum to various degrees, just to see if they could all get along, see to see if they could all be part of the same church and have fellowship uh, and get along without killing each other. I mean, literally militia members who were ready to take up arms in the same congregation as people uh, who were government officials and supporters of the big government. Now, just based on that info that I give you, how do you think that experiment went? Do you think it was uh, successful or a miserable failure? I mean, in light of the, the church culture and the experience that we have, where we can't, even, we can't even stay together over the type of music that we play, when, you know, the, the, the church potluck is a source of major schism, <laughs> how do you think... How do you think they did? Anissa used to say that people think that Satan well, landed in the, uh, 
in the choir loft when he came, fell to earth, but it's not true. He landed in the potluck. <laughs> How do you think that experiment went? You think it, it was successful or did it fail miserably as so many other church startups and experiments did? Well, maybe you're thinking based on how we've experienced church that it was a miserable failure, but actually it wasn't. It was a, it was a phenomenal success. Uh, there were rough spots for sure. There were arguments for sure. There was, some, there was a lot of crazy, but they ended up succeeding. And not only succeeding, but they succeeded so much that within the first 300 years of their existence, they were managed to spread throughout the entire known world, evangelized up to 10% of the people and eventually became the official religion of that government. And maybe you're figuring out what I'm talking about right now, but I'm talking about the apostolic church. I want you to think about it. I mean, from the gate, Jesus picked disciples, Simon the Zealot, that's not, uh, that's not just saying that he was like really into it. The Zealot was a title for uh, a, a, a party of people that were that believed in armed revolution. Their idea that their idea of government was getting in uh, and overthrowing the Roman government and kicking them out. And at the same time, he picked Matthew, who was a tax collector, who was the guy collecting all those taxes from his own people and supporting Rome. And as that apostolic church that was essentially Jewish that had a lot of these anti-government senti sentiments spread out into Asia Minor and into the, into the greater world, they were coming into Gentile churches. They were coming into churches with this Roman citizenship. And, how, and those people somehow, somehow they managed to hold it together uh, in a way that, that uh, should be an example to us. And, and they did it in a cultural milieu, which is arguably way more difficult to navigate than what we're faced with. And yet they still did it. How did they do it? Well, this letter, Peter is writing this letter and speaking into that church. Uh, and so it tells us a lot about how they managed to pull it off. And so the first thing, he's going to tell us three things, of course... But the first thing that Peter's going to tell us uh, is this, that how we treat each other affects our witness to the world. How we treat each other affects our witness to the world. This is the first point. I'm going to tell you, let me tell you a little bit about my family Thanksgiving. My, my family and our Thanksgiving, our annual Thanksgiving dinner uh, is at my sister's house. And when we get together, here's the makeup. There's three broader evangelicals three Roman Catholics, one highly educated, one uh, regular Catholic, one lapsed Catholic, uh, four progressive, two gay nephews, and then there's us, reformed, conservative, whatever the heck we are. It almost sounds like the beginning of a bad joke, right? A Catholic, a reformed theologian, and two gay men went to a Thanksgiving dinner, right? Um, <clears throat> well, last Thanksgiving, uh, we ended up getting in a conversation about, about salvation, how someone is saved, right? Can you imagine? <clears throat> Can you imagine that conversation with the Catholics, <clears throat> the broader evangelicals, the Reformed, the New Agers, the progressives? Can you even imagine like where that conversation went and how it went? It got tense. 
In fact, it got so tense at one point, I couldn't, I couldn't control myself, and I, I stopped everybody, and I said, let's talk about Trump. <laughs> just to watch everybody, you know, just to watch everybody melt down, you know? Do you know what happened next? Do you know what happened next? We laughed. We all laughed. We cleared the table. We hung out for a little while in the living room, and everybody gave each other big hugs, and then we went home. Why didn't it end in a huge fight? Why didn't it end in family division? So we never wanted to see each other again. Why didn't it end in deciding next year we're going to have four different Thanksgiving dinners at different locations? Because we have a deeper bond that's more important to us than our political worldviews or our, you know, our, our, our worldviews. We're a family, and that's what Peter's trying to get across to us here. The church is also a family. And we have bonds that are deeper and more important and longer lasting than whatever our current worldview of this world happens to be. And Peter wants us to remember that as we deal with each other. And so what he says is, Here's what he says. Here's how you do it. He says, have unity of mind. That doesn't mean, as we apparently think, that doesn't mind that we create unithink uh, bubbles where we uh, segregate ourselves according to our particular nuanced worldview. It means, it means that we understand that our role, that the gospel, its proclamation, and the advancement of the kingdom of God into the earth is our first priority and our other political ideals are a distant second. And that we hold together, <clears throat> we hold together by holding that as most important. Uh, it means, uh, it calls us to have sympathy, which really means to be sensitive and care about the other emotion, the emotions of those that we're, that we're in relationship with and their thoughts and concerns. You know, think about that when you get into your next social media debate. It calls us to have brotherly love. This is fascinating. In the book of Acts, Christians are called the brothers more than 50 times. They're called disciples like 30 times. The most often word to describe Christians is a word that, that denotes that we, we should, that we have these familial bonds, you know? And they say that, that blood is thicker than water, but spirit is thicker than blood. We should treat each other as if, we, as if we're truly family, because we are. It means to have a tender heart, which is compassion. I think the best way to describe this is to recognize that everybody's going through it. Everybody's experiencing hardship. And finally, to have a, a tender mind which is a, a realistic expectation of ourselves and our knowledge base and a willingness to learn and listen and consider others. And when we have trouble doing that, when we have trouble doing that, I think it's possible that the reason we have trouble doing that is because we have put our political worldview in first place and made our allegiance to Jesus a distant second. And maybe the most important thing he says is that um, 
we're to bless, which means a couple of things. In the ancient world, in the Greco-Roman world, to bless would mean to speak well of someone in public, to say good things about them and not, not rip them apart or tear them down. But in Hebrew culture, it meant uh, privately to, to, to pray blessing upon them. It meant to pray blessing upon them in public, like when we pray uh, for each other, where we pray, we pray, you know, that God would do this and this uh, for this person. But it means that we also pray for people in private. I, one of my first mentors in Christian faith, I had when I got sober, when I got saved, I had three people on my on my list that I absolutely despised, <laughs> and I mean, I hated them. I hated these people, and I was I had plans. I had plans for them, and. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and my mentor was like, okay, you're going to get, you're gonna have to get Christian now. You're going to have to get rid of those plans. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to pray for them every day and pray that God would bless them 10 times in what he's blessed you. And if it's possible, I want you to do something to, super nice for them without ever telling them you did it or ever letting them find out who did it. And what he was doing was, it was kind of helping to erase that poison that I was carrying around in my mind in my hatred for these people. Uh, and, 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 and the surprising outcome of that was rather than carrying around all this anger and anxiety and fear and, and whatnot, it kind of it released to where I got to the point where I truly wanted their blessing. I truly was so grateful what God had given me. I wanted them to experience the same thing and it produced in my life, it produced in me a joy and a happiness, which is the surprising outcome of all this. Peter says it straight up. He quotes, he quotes Psalm 33 saying that uh, the unexpected surprising outcome of this is that it will help us to love life. And to see good days, which means that this is one method why a way that we can deal with our anxiety and our despair and our depression and our anger. Uh, but just as important than that, and even maybe more important, is that Peter, it, it, I think he wants us to understand that how we treat each other uh, affects our mission in the world and the gospel presentation that we bring to people, right? Now, Jesus says straight up in the gospel of John, he says that if we fail to love each other, then we can have no expectation of, of success in evangelizing. And why is that? Because if we don't even love each other, our message becomes suspect. Uh, if we don't treat each other well, if we don't even follow our own commands, how can we expect anybody else to believe that we take them seriously? And so Jesus says, you have to, you can't just, you know, Paul too. We can like have all knowledge, all wisdom, all that. But if we don't love each other, uh, our message is dismissed. And that happens. And so... Summary, first point here. That our, you know, our, our political worldviews, they're not unimportant. We're allowed to have them. But they become secondary to our allegiance to Jesus. And we need to remember that they're temporary. They're temporary and our family in Christ is eternal. Uh, and if we acted like that, 
If we acted in that, maybe people would be more inclined to believe us or at least believe that we believe what we say. Okay, second thing. Second thing that Peter talks about is that fear can cause us to abandon our principles in favor of power. That fear can cause us to abandon our principles in favor of power. One of the uh, best scenes in Apocalypse Now is when Martin Sheen, who plays Captain Benjamin Willard, finally catches up with Marlon Brando, who plays Colonel Kurtz, uh, in the jungles of, I, I, get, I believe it's Cambodia, right? And he's been sent as an assassin to, uh, to liquidate, to neutralize Colonel Kurtz because Colonel Kurtz has gone insane. He's gone rogue. And there's a scene in the movie where Colonel Kurtz, I'm not going to say what it is because it's too, it's, it's brutal. But Colonel Kurtz is describing this, this horrible atrocity that he saw the Viet Cong commit. And he says to Martin Sheen, he says, if I had a hundred such men, our problems here would soon be over. And what's he thinking? What's he saying? Now, Kurtz is, is, is described or presented uh, as having gone insane. I think it might be better to describe him as saying that, that the insanity of war abandoned, he, uh, drove him to abandon all principles in favor of power. If he were unrestrained by morality, he believed that he could quickly win the war and winning became the most important thing. Now, listen, that's a, obviously a super extreme example, right? Uh, but is it possible that we all, in principle, engage in some of the same things, especially when we're afraid is it possible that we have a tendency to abandon our principles in favor of winning, especially when we're afraid? When we're afraid of uh, losing hold of the culture, when we're afraid of even losing our jobs, when we're afraid, how about this one? You're afraid for your kids. You're afraid what your, the kind of world your kids are gonna grow up in and what they're gonna be exposed to, amen? I'm feel, I, we feel it, man. We feel it all the time. The, the, the cult values of the culture, like, uh, you know, uh, intrude on us and our kids. And it, it's happened in moments where you just don't even expect it. You're watching what you think is a documentary and boom, you got, you're rushing for the remote control. And you're afraid. That's, what's going to happen to our kids? Well, I've always taken this passage... To this be like a straight up exhortation to study apologetics so that we can own the liberal theologians when we get into it on social media, right? Can I, how many people like really think that when they saw this passage? Uh, but listen, it's the context, the whole context that's surrounding this order to be uh, you know, to be prepared to give, uh, to give a defense or to give an answer for the hope that's within us. The whole context is, is, is couched in this context of fear. And really, if you look at the cultural, you know, what was happening at this time, the fear is, it's a fear of what will happen to us under pagan rule. 
That's what Peter's people were afraid of or worried about in Rome and in the other cult in the other churches throughout Asia Minor. Uh, don't believe me? Look, he starts it out with a rhetorical question. He's like, who can harm you? What's implied there? They're afraid that harm is going to come to them. And then he says, you know, straight up, he's all, have no fear of them. That's an exhortation. Who's the them? It's those who are in power and culture who have the power to affect them. Whether it's in, you know, whatever sorts of persecution they may be facing or uh, just the, the values, the antichrist values of the world seeping in. Uh, and he's, you know, finally he, he mixes courtroom language with everyday language. That defense or to give a defense, you know, we all know that's the word apologia. That's, that's really a word, a courtroom word that means to have a prepared defense in a court of law. Uh, and maybe there's the, a view to that. Peter's having a view to that. You might be dragged into a, into a courtroom and, and accused, the early Christians were accused of being atheists and anti-patriotic because they believed in one God and they refused to worship all the other gods that were responsible for blessing their culture. And because they didn't do that, they called them atheists. They called them anti-patriotic. You might be dragged into a courtroom. So give, be ready to give a defense of what your hope is in. Uh, but then he says, he doesn't say, you know, magistrates or government officials, he says, be ready to give that defense to anyone who asks. He takes that courtroom language and he puts it in everyday language. Meaning uh, that anybody, at any time, we might be engaged in a conversation like that and we should be prepared and ready to give a hope, to give a defense for what it is that we are hoping in. And so the idea really, I think, is Peter is saying that Christians are on trial every day. We're on trial every day. And the world is watching us. The world is watching us to see what it is we hope for. You know, and he, and, and he, hope, he, uh, he finishes it off by saying, you know, make sure that you suffer for doing good. Uh, even if you, you know, hint, we may suffer for doing good. <laughs> Doing good may not bring you benefit. It may bring you suffering in the world. But he says, make sure if you're suffering, you're suffering for doing good and not for doing evil. Later in chapter 4, he really spells that out. He says, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Murderers speaking directly to uh, the, uh, the zealots, the guys in the churches who like political assassination is like a viable alternative on the table for these guys. Paul says, or Peter says, don't do it. Meddlers are those who want to get in other people's business and force them to live one way, uh, even against what they believe. And so why the context of fear? Why is he couching this all in the context of fear? And I think it's because we are more likely, it's more of a temptation for us to abandon the Christian principles uh, of upholding, you know, the cultivation of virtue, of upholding our hope in Christ and the resurrection. 
uh, and holding that as we allow God to work out his providence, we're more likely to abandon those principles for power. To take up power and try to force things to go in the way we think they should go. Abraham did this. Abraham knew that God's promise to him was that he would have a son and that through him all the families of the earth would be blessed. 25 years went by and Abraham said, God hasn't come through on this promise. I need to step in and help him with this. He had a child with his maidservant Hagar and all kinds of chaos erupted. Why? Because he forced the issue. He was afraid he took matters into his own hands and he tried to force it through to make it happen. And sometimes we can be guilty of the same thing, right? Because, and it's easy to do because obviously God's will is for our political worldview to win, right? Unless it's not. Unless God is judging the culture, which is really what judgment is in the, in the Bible. It's it's taking the influence of salt and light and the witness of the church away. So that people then engage in the sins that they want to engage in and experience the consequence and the collapse and the despair of it. And we don't want to fight against that if that's what God is doing. Well, here's the key. What is our hope? When he says, you ready to give a defense for what our hope is, what is our hope? That's, a, that's not uh, ambiguous. That is a specific thing. Our hope, the Christian hope, is in resurrection and the life of the age to come. That's what our hope is. The return of Jesus, the resurrection from the dead, the bringing in, the, 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 the destruction of this age and the bringing in of a new world, of a completely new order that we are already a part of. That is our hope. And the bummer, the big bummer is that when we place anything above that, if we get tempted to at least, you know, none of us systematically, systematic theology-wise would, would, you know, would say that the kingdom of God is underneath our political worldview, but our practical theology oftentimes works those things out opposite. So that practically, we talk more about our political worldview than we do about the kingdom of God. And the problem is when we do that, we are giving an answer to the culture. We're giving a defense that our hope isn't really in the resurrection. Our hope is in this Victory is in this candidate, is in this party, is in this, is in our wealth, it's in our status, it's in whatever it may be that we are truly hoping in. People see that, they smell it, uh, and they can see that's really what we're hoping in. And it becomes very difficult for them to believe that our true hope is in Jesus. And so... Listen, how we treat each other as a witness, how we act in the world as a witness. And Peter's main point here that he gets to at the end, finally, is to say that we've got nothing to be afraid of. We've got nothing to be afraid of. Why? Because Jesus reigns over the cosmos. We've got nothing to be afraid of because Jesus is the ruler of 
over the cosmos. This next section of, of this text is one of the maybe top five bizarre texts in all the New Testament. I've got an idea for a sermon series I'm going to do in a while called like Odysseys and Curious Odysseys and Peculiarities of the Bible, like a circus sideshow theme where we talk about Elisha and the bears and we talk about uh, the, you know, the, the adultery test in numbers, just the weirdest stuff you can find in the Bible. I love, I love that stuff. Because when you dig, when you find something weird or unexplainable, when you dig there, you find gold. And, and so we're going to do that eventually. This is a definite candidate for it. Let me, let me read it so you get what I'm talking about from verse 18b through 20. Talking about Jesus being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. What the heck? What does that even mean? There's a, all kind of speculation over it. Uh, one popular view is that in between the Jesus' death and his resurrection, that he in the spirit went to uh, all the people who were kept in Hades or Sheol or hell or whatever you want to call it, and again, proclaimed the gospel to them to give everybody a second chance. Uh, that's a nice thought, but it doesn't really it doesn't work out with the text at all. First of all, made alive in the spirit is always a reference to resurrection power. When Jesus, Jesus' resurrection is when he was made alive in the spirit. So whenever this happened, it happened post-resurrection. Uh, and, and proclaimed isn't the word, the usual word for gospel proclamation. It's a more generic word for proclaiming some truth or some axiom or some reality, right? Uh, and so the big question is, who are the spirits in prison? And the answer to that is, I don't know. <laughs> who knows? That's where it gets sticky, right? Maybe, maybe it's the it's souls in Sheol. Maybe, uh, I think most likely it's talking about uh, a special class of, ange of angelic beings uh, the way it's phrased in the Greek, spirits, plural, the way the language is almost always, it usually speaks about uh, the evil spirits, fallen spirits. And so most in other parts of the Bible talks about a class of angels that are, that are confined in chains and have been since the flood. So it seems like it's these angels that Jesus went uh, and proclaimed too. And, and if that's true, and I think it is, it means that uh, it makes these angels like outliers. So that the sense is Jesus went all the way even to these angels who were wrapped in chains to make this proclamation. No stone left unturned. Jesus went to the farthest corner of the cosmos to make this proclamation. And what was it? What did he proclaim? Well, it tells us the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Those are all angelic categories. Angels, authorities, those are heavenly authorities, powers, 
Paul elsewhere calls them thrones, dominions. Those are all hierarchies of angelic beings in the invisible world. And it's saying the proclamation is that Christ's resurrection from the dead proclaims that he is, is ruler of the cosmos, ruler of the universe, the seen and the unseen. That he is the ruler and has control and his, and his power and all the cosmos is subjected to him, even the furthermost corners of it. And man, am I glad that that's what it says here. I'm so glad this isn't some weird passage about giving you know, people who spent their whole lives hating God another chance. Uh, I'm so glad this is speaking about something so much better. Because Jesus is not the king of any one political party or another. Jesus is not the king of the United States. Jesus is not even the king of the West or the king of the earth. He's not the king of the solar system. He's not even the king of the galaxy. He is the king over the entire cosmos. Every corner of the world, everything in it is in subjection to him. And that is our hope. That is the Christian hope. That's our eternal hope. And our baptism signifies, our baptism is the sign that God has given us saying, you belong to that king. You belong to that realm. You belong to that reign. If you come and in faith, trusting in Jesus is the means of your salvation, that his perfect life was the life that you could never live, giving you credit for that, his death paid for all of your sins. If you come in faith to that, your baptism signifies and seals that you belong to Jesus and nothing can pull you out of that. Everything else is secondary to it. And that's true of those of us adult converts who were baptized as adults. And that's true of little Hobbes who was baptized here today. Well, he comes in faith and understands that later in life that this is God's promise to him. God's promise to us. It means that we've already left this temporary world and all of its half promises and all of its half answers and all of its brokenness. We've already left it behind and we are already part of a world and a, and a reign that is so much bigger. It's mind boggling. And what that means is we can hold our earthly alliances, our beliefs a little bit, a little bit more loosely, especially when it comes to each other. And even when it comes to the world, we can engage in the world and engage our ideas in the world and engage in, the, in, in persuasion and not be driven to persuade by force because we're afraid. What this tells us is we have nothing to be afraid about because we're already good. We're already saved. Um, we already belong to the greater kingdom that Christ has created through his death. And so I have a, in conclusion, I have a good friend, 
pastor in New Mexico named Jordan Huff, and he, he posted something last week that he said, the only cure to being fear-driven is to become promise-driven. It was like, the, it was a thesis for his sermon this week, and I, I wrote him back, I was like, that's kind of my thesis too. And he was preaching on a totally different, you know, verse of the Bible, obviously, but it's just, you know, it's, it's an axiom in scriptures. We don't have to be fear-driven because of the promises that we have in Christ. And when we focus on those as our greatest reality, it helps us to calm down so that we can exist in the world, but the world doesn't have to have so much power or fear over us anymore. Amen? Okay, let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be faithful witnesses in the world. Lord, whenever we inadvertently are afraid for something being taken away from us or afraid that we are not going to get something, uh, we tell the world that our hope is truly in that thing that we're so afraid of losing to various degrees. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to not be afraid. We pray that you would help us to understand and know your promises and to know where we belong, to whom we belong, where our people truly are, and what our future is, and how it's secured in Jesus' faithfulness and not our own. And in that security, and in that love, and in that, that, that safety that we have in Jesus, we, help, we pray that you would help us to be able to make a defense, to explain to people why that hope is a better and a more sure and certain hope than anything else. Lord, we pray that you would help us to hold all of our other opinions and all of our other beliefs in relationship to that one uh, so that we might even be more persuasive and effective in the world, Lord. And if not, Lord, help us to hold on to the truth that we belong to you and that you are working your plan out and that you have us and that we are safe. No matter what, in Jesus' name, amen.